Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is Todd Hicksonball, a.k.a. The Todd Father. And we have a great episode today. Today we are talking with Dominique Dubois-Gilliard. We had to practice that. I Yes, I did. But, Dominique, you're awesome. And Can't wait to talk more about you in a second. And we're talking with him about his new book, Rethinking Incarceration, or Advocating for Justice That... This is going to be interesting. So Dominique is is a person who we kind of ran into actually through Instagram, people posting books that they've been reading. Shout out L. Campbell. Shout out L. Campbell, a friend of the podcast, um, for for putting that on Instagram because we went and checked out the book and we were like, holy cow, this is awesome. So what is this book about? Um, it, rethinking incarceration. And so he is a person who has done his homework on a very, very particular um, uh, area of research, and that is uh, looking at, at the justice system and looking at what incarceration really looks like. And he's the first one to say, and he says this over and over again in the podcast, there are other people who have gone before him who have made this easier. Yep. And that's great. And we're going to link to those in yep. the show notes. We're going to link to those in the show notes. But he has a very specific message that he's putting out, and that is, hey— there are a lot of things that go into actual incarceration. So not even the justice system, like getting through the legal process. Once they are actually incarcerated, there are a lot of things to and this. Specifically incarceration of black men, black and brown people. And, yes. And I shouldn't just say men and women. And women. Right. Yep. And so he talks about things from the private to from wide ranging from the private prison system. He talks about the school to prison pipeline. He talks about how mental health plays into this thing. And he also talks about immigration and how all that kind of stuff, um, especially in the current political climate, um, how things have, have impacted that and, and how actually uh, there's some things that we didn't know that are going on in our prison systems. And this, this, ep- this episode is going to make you angry. And it's going to make you uncomfortable. And that's okay. And that's okay. Because some truths are uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean they can't be ignored. And you don't need to agree with someone 100% in order to listen to them, yep. in order to learn from them. Yep. We encourage you just to listen to it with an open mind. Um, he is incredibly intelligent. I mean, as soon as you start listening to him speak, you're going to be like, oh, man, as Kendrick said, there's levels to this. And he, he's just a wealth of information, a wealth of knowledge, and we're really, really excited to be able to, uh, be able to talk with him. But we're not there yet because it is time. For our Learner's Corner Recommended Resource of the Week. So first of all, this book. This book is a must read. This is a Learner's Corner Recommended Resource must of the Week. read. But if you already got the book. Good for you. First of all, you're more than welcome to buy it again. Yes. And you second would appreciate of all, that. here's the second resource we want to recommend. We want to recommend, and we've talked about this before on the podcast. Yep. The documentary on Netflix, 13th. Yep. What was that called again? The 13th? Yep. Um, just go watch it. You'll understand. Yep. You can find that it's, on Netflix. It continues the, this conversation. It, it's on Netflix. Um, I would encourage you, even if this interview makes you angry, to go watch that. Um, it's just, there's a lot of stuff in there yep. to process through. And so, without further ado, we're going to jump into our conversation with Dominique. Well, Dominique, welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. We're so excited to have you on today. I'm excited to be with you. You know, you recently authored uh, a brand new book called Rethinking Incarceration. Can you just tell us a little bit of what made you want to write this book? Yeah, there were a couple of things that really made me want to write the book. Um, First and foremost, it was the church's silence on this critical issue. Um, Michelle Alexander uh, really opened the floodgates for this conversation with her seminal work, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. And for me, she named something that I felt growing up, and I just couldn't put my finger quite on the pulse of what was happening. And she... She helped really peel back the scales from so many of our eyes in regards to how critical the issue of mass incarceration was. And so that was really the first thing that kind of prompted me was uh, 
coming into an awareness of how urgent this moment is that we find ourselves in. But the second and third thing that really prompted me particularly to write the book is the first story that I opened chapter one of my book with. Um, It's a story about Katherine Johnston, who is a 92-year-old grandmother in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, This was in 2006 when I was a senior in undergrad. I was a double major in history and African-American studies. And there was this case where Katherine Johnston lived in a community 10 miles away from my campus at Georgia State University. And she lived in a community that had been uh, jurisdicted uh, zoned as a no-knock warrant community. And in no-knock warrant communities, officers have the right to invade a premise without having to show their uh, show a warrant or actually acknowledge their presence as officers in a way that literally they would have to do in any other community or any other actual physical establishment or building um, just because this community is disproportionately uh, marked by uh, drug trafficking and historically those have been communities that are disproportionately people communities of color and impoverished communities um so it was a crazy story where Catherine johnston uh, officers came to her house they said that they had been staking it out for months and knew that it was part of the epicenter for drug trafficking in the community they end up kicking in her door at three o'clock in the morning uh shotguns drawn uh unidentified and they end up deploying 39 bullets fatally striking her in her house five times in her living room. Um, After they shoot and kill her, uh, they search the house and they find out that there's no drugs nor drug paraphernalia throughout the whole house. They start to freak out. How do we legitimate what just happened? They conspire to cover up their transgressions and they plant drugs throughout our house to legitimate what they did. These officers, three of them, um, continue to lie about what they did uh, after the case goes to court and to the point that they realize that they're caught red-handed and then they confess it all, the planting of the drugs from that to the point where they even acknowledge that they lied initially to get the no-knock warrant uh, from a judge because they were staking out her house and didn't know that it was an epicenter for drug trafficking. So my uh, African-American studies professors were saying that we as concerned citizens had a moral and ethical responsibility to get involved um, civically and advocate for communities like Katherine Johnson's communities to be rezoned and to actually literally advocate for no-knock warrants to be taken off the books because they make vulnerable vulnerable communities even more vulnerable. And I was like, yes, I agree with that. This is exactly the kind of work that we're supposed to be doing as concerned citizens and people who care about justice. But then I took a step back and I said, as a Christian, if anything should be compelling me to stand up for the least of these and uh, uh, defend the dignity and the humanity of vulnerable people, it should be my relationship with Jesus Christ, not my academic institution. And so I was really dismayed by the fact that my church was not calling me to the same kind of civic engagement as my academic institution was, when the real impetus for me being involved in the work of justice in the world should be my relationship with Jesus Christ and my understanding of the gospel. So fast forward a few years, um, I go to seminary, I end up teaching at a seminary, and then after teaching at a seminary, I took a pastoral call out to Oakland, California, and I was asked to join the pastoral staff of a community that was primarily composed of East Asian and Caucasian members who were upper middle to upper class but they met in an impoverished African-American community. That's where the church was. And they were trying to figure out how come the black people from the community weren't coming to their church. And so the whole pastoral staff of the church was uh, Asian-American. And so I got hired on and I, as I came on and I tried to help them understand how they could improve relationships with the local community and actually get more people from the local community to actually come to the church, 
I came in and I did what you're supposed to do when you come into a new community pastorally. You're supposed to meet with the people. You're supposed to develop relationships with the people. And you learn from the longstanding wisdom of citizens who have been members of that community for a long time. And as I did that, I went door to door and I realized that I could not knock on five doors in a row in that community without meeting a family whose life was marked by mass incarceration. And as I came into that revelation, I went back and I told the church, I said, hey, part of the reason why people in this community don't see this as a place where they can worship and a place uh, where they can, you know, be spiritually fed is because that we're not entering into the pain of this community. We're not um, addressing the realities that are marking this community. And when I said that to leadership, they kind of bristled and didn't want to really receive that as truth. Um, And so that, again, really dismayed me. So I took a step back and I started looking at other congregations in similar situations where the vast majority of the people who attended the church uh, were commuters into a community. And the community that they were commuting into was disproportionately um, composed of impoverished uh, minorities in a community that was institutionally neglected and uh, was really in need and was really marked by mass incarceration. I wanted to see how many of those churches were actually talking about mass incarceration or other issues that were directly defining the reality of so many of the citizens in the community that the church was located in. And I was, again, dismayed by how few churches were actually entering into the pain of the people that they were called to. And so I, my soul was really troubled. I went and I prayed and I asked God, you know, what was I supposed to do in light of this new information? And becoming aware of how frequent this was, God said, I want you to go and actually start to tell the message. I want you to start to share the story. So I started going any place I can get um, access to. I was giving presentations about mass incarceration and particularly the church's relationship and responsibility to respond to this critical issue. And so uh, three years ago, uh, I was giving that presentation and a representative from InterVarsity Press sat in on the presentation and came up to me afterwards and said, this is the book that I've been praying for for the last eight years. Can you turn this presentation into a book? And so that's ultimately what we have before us now. Wow. One of the, I guess one of the, so really the main thing of the book is, is talking about mass incarceration. Um, and, and, and kind of rethinking that. And so to start this conversation off, um, what is mass incarceration? Yeah. And so for this question, I really like to pay homage to the work that went before me, um, particularly Michelle Alexander's work. And she's the one who really defines mass incarceration, um, the best for us. She says that mass incarceration is a massive system of racial and social control, the process by which people are swept into the criminal justice system, branded criminals and felons, locked up for longer periods of time than most other countries in the world who incarcerate people who have been convicted of crimes, and then they are released into a permanent second-class status in which they are stripped of their basic civil and human rights, like the right to vote, the right to serve on juries, and the right to be free of legal discrimination in employment, housing, and access to public benefits. And so when we talk about mass incarceration, we're talking about that, but we're also talking about a criminal justice system that has devolved, not evolved, that has devolved into a really sinister system where the least of these are being locked up in mass and then exploited for their labor behind bars. Um, Most people don't really understand how much commerce is produced behind bars and how integral people who are incarcerated are to um, the production of everyday things like some of the apparel that we wear uh, to serving as representatives in call centers when you actually make calls to people who make license plates for our cars um, and furniture. Mass incarceration really is this kind of lucrative um, industry where people who 
work for a lot of these companies, work and become experts in their their craft, and then upon being released, they go to these same companies that they worked for for 10 and 15 years behind bars, and they apply for a job there, given all their expertise expertise in the work, and then they're denied a job because of their criminal uh, record. So it's, what it essentially says is your labor is only desirable when it's exploitable, because crim, uh, people who are locked up uh, within our criminal justice system, they usually make about a dollar to two dollars a day for their labor. But if you were to hire those same people after they get out of incarceration, you would have to pay them normal uh, wages because of labor unions and laws. Sure. So I guess one of the things that that oftentimes is talked about, um, and one of the major pieces of what, I, I don't know the percentages, you probably would better than I do, but um, the, the war on drugs and, and, and charges and things why people are locked up relating to um, narcotics and, and different things like that. Why was the war on drugs in the 1980s the origin for mass incarceration as we know it today? And again, like you're going to know the percentages and, and things better, way better than I do. Yeah, and I'm actually going to even reframe that a little bit because I actually don't believe that mass incarceration, uh, the origins of it are the war on drugs. That's actually one of the things that really separates my book from some of the other books that are out there. Um, while the war on drugs was officially launched by Nixon in 1971, and it led to an astronomic rise within our criminal justice system, mass incarceration's origins are really uh, something known as the convict leasing system, which was a sinister system that emerged right after Reconstruction in the South and was aided by the loophole that we know exists in the 13th Amendment, which says that slavery is outlawed in our nation except as a punishment for a crime. And so with the convict leasing, what you had was African-Americans who were previously enslaved and then went through a brief period of empowerment through an era known as Reconstruction, uh, where federal troops were sent down into the South, and they ensured African-Americans' ability to be able to participate and thrive within the political and socioeconomic systems of the land. Uh, as soon as those troops are withdrawn, you actually get the reemergence and rearticulation of white supremacy throughout the land through a number of different um, articulations. So first you have sharecropping, which most people know is this really sinister system that uh, kept African-Americans socioeconomically dependent upon uh, white landowners. And then you also have what um, is known as the Black Codes, which are literally laws that were uh, derived from the slave codes but were reinterpreted in a way that they could be reapplied after slavery is abolished. And with black codes, you have black people being arrested for anything as trivial as walking too close to a picket fence to what you also get is uh, vagrancy laws, which literally say if African-Americans throughout the land cannot prove that they are employed, they can be arrested. And so you have this mass incarceration of black bodies that are going on, and you also see um, from a gendered lens, you see that black women who were previously slaves and white males who owned them used to have access to their bodies in any way they wished or desired. They are now not working in households as slaves, but they're working as domestics and nannies, and they are actually still really vulnerable to the same kind of sexual advancements. And what you're finding is these African-American women are trying to re-insist on their newfound civil rights, and they're actually trying to thwart the sexual advances of men who used to have access to their body in any way that they desired. And they're actually being arrested in mass because these men are so uh, shocked and really um, offended by the the re insistment of their new sound civil rights. And so you get all of these black women who are working in these homes who are being arrested in mass 
all for the same charge, which is larceny. And so what you really find out when you actually dig beneath a lot of the surface of these court cases is that there's black women who are actually trying to resist the sexual advances of white men who owned them months prior. And these white men are so offended that these black women now have these new rights that they're actually charging them with a crime of larceny because they know that these women will be incarcerated because they have to go stand before all white juries who are going to find them guilty and teach them a punishment. I mean, teach them the lesson that you might think that these new civil rights are going to protect you, but ultimately you're still under my power. And so when you get this, you have these huge number of African-Americans who are locked up in the South. And then because of convict leasing, what convict leasing says is that anybody who is arrested was literally leased out, rented out to people who are going to use them for their labor. And particularly in the South, what you have is literally people who owned people three months prior investing in the convict leasing system to the point where they're getting the people who are doing the slave labor on their fields three months ago who are doing the same exact labor now in a legal way because convict leasing um, allows quote-unquote criminals to be leased out for their labor. And a lot of historians actually talk about convict leasing as a more oppressive system than slavery because under slavery, slave owners had a vested interest in keeping their slaves alive because if they actually worked their slave to death, then they lost the the profit that would come from their labor. But within convict leasing, slave owners, there is no ownership of the people who are doing the labor. And so you no longer have a vested interest in keeping a person alive or actually, you know, feeding them and making sure that they're healthy enough to do the work because literally you can work a person to death and once they die, you just pick up another person to lease out and do the labor. And so when we talk about um, convict leasing, I think one of the things that is really critical to understand is that convict leasing um, is so akin to uh, slavery in so many ways. Historian uh, Mary Ellen Curtis uh, says that uh, whipping, keeping people in chains, uh, and this kind of brutal and physical torture and mental abuse were all the norms under the system. And it really amplified the social control that was prevalent within slavery. But then I think the other thing to understand as far as the rootedness of it being the, the origin of mass incarceration is that the money that came from convict leasing was so vital for the Southern economy that it kept it afloat after um, after slavery was abolished. So, for example, in uh, 1898, convict leasing supplied 73% of Alabama's entire annual economy for wow. the state. And so we have to understand, like, this was not just something that happened to a few people, and it was something that, you know, made a small bump in um, economic revenue. Entire states throughout the South after slavery was abolished were dependent upon uh, convict leasing to actually sustain their economy. And so that's why I really make the point that we have to understand this as the origin of mass incarceration and not the 1970s. And when we talk about mass incarceration today, um, many people know that the U.S. represents 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's incarcerated population. Um, Statistically, this means that our nation has more people locked up in jails, prisons, and detention centers than any country in the history of the world. Uh, We currently have more jails and prisons than degree-granting institutions and universities throughout our nation. And this means that in many places throughout the country, there are more people who are living behind bars than who are living on college campuses today. Uh, One out of every uh, 25 people who are sentenced to the death penalty in our nation are falsely incarcerated. And we know that in uh, women are the fastest growing populace throughout our criminal justice system right now. And really women since the 1980s have been uh, incarcerated at a rate of 50% higher 
than men, but we don't usually talk about women in incarceration. Uh, we also know that 80% of women who are incarcerated are mothers, um, and that has led to a reality that one in 14 kids in our nation have a, at least one incarcerated parent. Uh, those numbers are exacerbated by poverty and race to the point that one in eight impoverished kids have an incarcerated parent, and one in nine African-American kids have an incarcerated parent. When we talk about race, um, one of the things we also know today is that one in three black men have a chance of spending time behind bars in their lifetime, and the number is one in six for Hispanic males. Right now, African-American men represent 6.5% of our nation's population, but they represent 40.2% of our nation's incarcerated population. Wow. Um, and 13 states throughout our nation have no minimum age for trying juveniles as adults. Because of this, um, we have seen kids as young as eight years old sentenced as adults. And when a child is sentenced as an adult, they uh, don't have the opportunity to have their record expunged when they're 18. So that means whatever offense that they had uh, made when they were as young as eight literally will define them for the rest of their lives, will restrict them from being able to have access to governmental uh aid and um, also in some states, if it's a felony offense, they will never be able to vote for the rest of their life or serve on a jury, um, get any kind of funding to go to college for a scholarship or anything of that nature. And we also know that juveniles who are sentenced as adults are more likely to be incarcerated in adult facilities. When juveniles are incarcerated in adult facilities, they're more likely to be sexually assaulted, and they're also more likely to commit suicide in the midst of their incarceration or right after they're released from their incarceration. Wow. You know, Dominique, can you, you touched on it a little bit earlier, but can you talk some more about, you know, how the war on drugs con has contributed to the state of mass incarceration today? Yeah, the drug war has been, um, yeah, it's been catastrophic for so many communities. It's been this reality where there has been a war not only waged on on drugs, but a war that's been waged on particular communities, um, particularly impoverished communities of color and governmentally neglected communities where they are riddled by uh failing schools and um, under an investment. And so you see realities where um, entire um, entire people groups are being targeted in mass um, for drug offenses. And oftentimes these offenses are leading to disproportionate outcomes that I just quoted when I talked about some of the racial disparities within our nation. Um, Michelle Alexander talks about in her book how there is not this unawareness that drugs are everywhere. And, but we have this notion that black and brown people are more prone to use drugs and we associate them as actual, the people, actually drug users and the people selling drugs. But statistics prove, have proven to us over and over and over again that black and brown people are no li more likely to sell or use drugs than white people. But when you look at who's arrested for criminal offenses in regards to drugs, it's disproportionately black and brown people. So one must ask, why is that the case? That's the case because of where the drug war has been chosen to be um, to be fought. And so a perfect example of this, I'm sure both of you all are uh, educated people and our relationship with tons of people who've been to undergrad and graduate school. And when you go to college, as I've done, um, Everybody on campus knows where you can get drugs from, right? Yeah, it's true. Like, it's, it's, no, it's no secret. The drugs are prevalent throughout our colleges and universities. But when was the last time you saw on the nightly news that there was a drug war launched on a college campus? Yeah. No, I don't it, I think of any. Yeah. 
it, it's a choice about where we're launching this war. And so disproportionately, there's been this institutional choice that we're going to launch this war in impoverished communities of color, and we're not going to launch this war in the suburbs where we know that their drugs are, or we're not going to launch this war in the rural context, or even on college campuses and universities, um, companies that we know. Um, there are people, you know, white collar crime, all these different people who drug activity is not reduced to impoverished communities of color, but that's where the war has been launched. And that decision has led to this disproportionate outcome where primarily we see black and brown people are arrested and disproportionately sentenced in more punitive ways uh, for drug offenses. The classic example of this was the disparity between um, the time that one would get for crack and powder cocaine. So before 2010, there was 101 discrepancy see for the time that someone would get for using crack versus powder cocaine. So literally crack and powder are the same substance. They just are broken down in different forms. They have the same impact on our bodies. And a person who is arrested for literally having the same exact amount of crack and powder, the person who was arrested for crack would get a hundred times more severe punishment than the person who would use powder. And we know that disproportionately Crack is used by black and brown people, and powder is used by Caucasian people. So they they judicially said that this was unfair. In twenty and in twenty ten, they finally decided to address this discrepancy after being on the books for years. And then when they decide to address the discrepancy, they decide to reduce it from one hundred and one to an eighteen to one disparity which again is an injustice because it literally is the exact same substance. So the only true equivalency would be a one-to-one -one ratio, but we, we refuse to adjust the law in a way that actually does justice in regards to who is incarcerated for drug offenses. And yes, yeah, drugs are wrong. Nobody wants anybody using drugs, but we have to have an honest conversation about the way in which race has distorted our system. I mean, another example of this would be the way in which uh, we sensationalize the use of crack. Um, but when we look at today with the opioid crisis, the way that we're actually saying that this is a national health emergency, but we're not talking about people who are addicted to opioids as super, super predators or these vile criminals that we must protect from our children because we have no clue uh, what they're going to do and how they're going to destroy our communities. We have to have a real honest conversation about the way in which race informs how we actually have conversations about what's the difference between people who have chemical dependencies and people who are actually out there committing heinous, violent crimes. Uh, you talk in your book, and I wanted to have you just talk to us a little bit about this, um, about how we've kind of gotten here. Uh, and there are there are several things I'll, I'll just reference really quick. Uh, you talk about the school to prison pipeline, uh, mental health, immigration, uh, private prisons, and all of these things as contributing factors to mass incarceration. Could you just talk to us a little bit about those? Yeah. Um, so this is another thing that really distinguishes my book from the other books. Um, most people are aware about the war on drugs and some of this detrimental impact. Um, another pipeline that people are aware of is the school to prison pipeline, but I'll spend a little bit of time talking about that. Uh, the school, school to prison pipeline really um, document, documents the well-worn path of kids who are sent to decrepit, underfunded schools who are uh, then arrested there and shipped off to brand new state-of-the-art high-tech prisons. And you see this this investment choice being made where there are people who are being caught up in this pipeline, students who are really the, our most vulnerable students. The people who are disproportionately caught up in the school to prison pipeline are kids who have endured trauma themselves, kids who have been sexually abused, physically abused, kids who have mental and physical um, disabilities, kids who identify as LGBTQ and have been kicked out of their home, kids who are homeless, kids who uh, are 
disproportionately black, brown, and native. And we we see that the school to prison pipeline really talks about how there has been this trajectory really starting in the 1970 that has flowed to the present where you have seen this increasing rise of punitiveness within our schools and you've seen school discipline that used to be handled in-house through in-house suspension and other forms of diversion that are now being outsourced to be um to be enforced by law enforcement. And so you have this rise of school resource officers, SROs, that really happen. And this rise gets amplified after uh, Columbine and Sandy Hook with these uh, school shootings. And you have a lot of parents who are advocating for uh, increased uh, presence within school for law enforcement as a kind of way to disincentivize people from entering in our schools. Well, one, we've seen that that has not disincentivized people from doing that. But two, one of the really interesting things about how this has all played out is that the funding that was increased for school resource officers really is in directly in relationship to school shootings. But we know disproportionately these school shootings have been happening in suburban uh mostly Caucasian um, school context. But when you actually look at where the school resource officers were disproportionately placed, they were disproportionately placed in schools and communities of color uh, that represented lower socioeconomic status. And so it's really interesting how the funding is in direct relationship to school shootings, but the places that the officers were deployed were the places where school shootings are least likely to happen. And we see um, there's been all this statistical analysis that shows that literally just having the presence of officers in schools increases the likelihood of people being caught up within the school-to-prison pipeline. And once a kid is arrested um, as a student, their likelihood of being incarcerated uh, again in their lifetime increases dramatically. And so this, this is really interesting conversation where, yes, clearly I am against um, school shootings, and I want to do anything that we can do to um, prohibit that. But it's really interesting that, you know, the funding that was initially earmarked in a way to try to disincentivize people from, you know, participating in these, these gross injustices that have become commonplace throughout our land, the funding didn't lead to people actually being deployed in the context where those school shootings were actually happening, but they've been disproportionately reallocated to communities where we see school shootings very seldomly happen. And so that's one piece of it. Um, but when we actually talk about the other two pipelines, there are other three pipelines that I say that are prevalent within this conversation about mass incarceration that we very seldomly hear about. The first of which I think is the most sinister pipeline, and that is the pipeline of mental health, where we actually see that there was this um, severe deinstitutionalization of mental health facilities, particularly communal health facilities that have led to this massive number of people who have severely diagnosed mental impairments who are locked up in our nation's jails and prisons. So we see that um, one of the things I talk about is state hospital populations have declined substantially since the mid-1950s, uh, falling by more than 75 percent between uh, 1955 and 1980. Uh, the deinstitutionalization of mental health facilities resulted in additional state prisoners accounting for up to 14% of the increased population of the incarcerated up until 1997. And then by 1998, the prison, people who were locked up in prisons um, represented 16% of all prisoners in our nation. Um, and we see that this problem continued to escalate and continues to escalate to the point that in 2014, um, medical professionals in the field bluntly said that prisons, have, prisons and jails have become America's new asylums. Um, in 2016, 400,000 people behind bars had severely diagnosed mental health conditions. And 
in many, uh, we also know that about 90,000 people every single year are literally legally um, designated as incompetent to stand trial. That means they cannot comprehend why they're being incarcerated, but we're continuing to incarcerate them. And so instead of getting people the medical mentor, medical interventions that they need, we are continuing to lock people up in mass. Uh, the next pipeline that I talk about that gets overlooked is uh, the private prison pipeline. Um, I mentioned a little bit earlier about how lucrative uh, incarceration is. The major way that private prisons became this profiteering industry is through private prisons. Uh, private prisons literally only exist because we ran out of space within our state and federal facilities to incarcerate people. And so in 1984, you get the evolution of the first private prison in our nation in Tennessee. Um, private prisons are operated by a third party uh, that's contracted out by the government. Private prison companies sign governmental contracts with state, federal, and local entities, which usually include a bed occupancy requirements. So when a bed, uh, private prison comes into community and the communities that they usually come into are sparsely populated rural communities that are socioeconomically um, wanting. Um, they bring a ton of jobs into the community, and so the community is very enthusiastic about the prison coming in. And they are also there in a lot of respects because the injustice that happens in these private prisons are kind of out of sight, out of mind, because they're in these sparsely populated communities out of the public's purview. But when they come in, they sign 10-year contracts with the community that they come into. And within the contract, it literally has a bed occupancy requirement that says that every single night in this prison, at least this percentage of the prison beds must be field on a nightly basis. The contracts all say that at least 70% of the beds must be filled, but some of the occupancy rates are as high as 100%. So for example, the state of our Arizona has three private prisons that have 100% bed occupancy rates. So it literally says that every single night, 100% of the beds in the prison must be filled. And if they are not filled, the private prison has the uh, opportunity to actually sue the community for a violation of contract. And I actually talk about in the book an example where that happened and the community had to pay the private prison. So private prisons are these lucrative entities where people are getting filthy rich off of incarceration. And we see this even, you know, validated in many ways where we talk about this rise in uh, incarceration by our former car, uh, president, Jim Carter, uh, who in 1997 did a interview with the New York Times, and in the interview, Carter, um, he cited inequalities in our criminal justice system that oftentimes penalize blacks and other minority groups more than whites. He said that as a young governor of Georgia, he and counterparts like Reuben Agnew in Florida and Dale Bumpers in Arkansas had an intense competition over who had the smallest prison population. Carter goes on to say now that it's the total opposite. The end quote Carter says, now governors brag on how many prisoners, how many prisons they built and how many people they can keep in jail and for how long. Um, and so you see this, this commentary literally even coming from our former president, and he talks about this really at the height of the war on drugs, and he talks about this as this, this system where we see that, you know, the rhetoric of law and order is really compelling people to fear violent criminals, quote unquote, or super predators, quote unquote, to the point that we really create this really punitive legislation that really locks people up and quarantines them away from us. But we don't understand how lucrative private prisons are. So for example, the two largest private prison companies in 2011 were uh, the GEO Group and an organization uh, called Corrections Corporation of America. Collectively, those two corporations made $3.3 billion in 2011 off of incarceration. And so we have to understand that this is really a socioeconomic um, reality to, that 
private prisons are also one of the most bought and sold stocks on the stock market. And uh, one of the senior advisors for SunTrust Bank said that with the new administration coming into power, that private prisons will be one of the top five most lucrative investments that people can make over the next four years. And that is in large part because it's connected directly to the fifth pipeline. So the third overlooked pipeline that I talk about is the war on immigration. I say that there's been a parallel war to the war on drugs that's been launched on immigration. We just ceased to call it a war on immigration. And so we see that um, from 1990 to 2000, there was a 610% increase in the number of arrests for um, immigration offenses. And in 2010, there was an immigration bed mandate that was introduced by a Democrat. And so I think that's important because I think sometimes we can fall into this partisan politics where we say, oh, well, Republicans are really driving this and Democrats are on our side. That's nonsense. Um, mass incarceration has been a bipartisan investment. Um, both parties have used um, law and order rhetoric and get tough on crime rhetoric that has really um, led to political expediency for them, but has really been catastrophic for people, particularly people who have gone to jail, who've changed their lives and who are coming out and trying to have a true second chance at life. Um, they have implemented very restrictive policies that make it very hard for anybody to actually have a true second chance at life. But in 2010, um, uh, Immigration bed mandate was introduced by Democrat Robert Byrd, and this congressional directive mandates that ICE keeps an average of 34,000 detainees in custody on a daily basis. And so 90% of people who are arrested for immigration offenses are arrested and detained in private prisons. So there's this direct correlation between private prisons, their economic flourishing, and restrictive and punitive legislation that is out there about immigration. You know, Dominique, one of the things that I absolutely love about your book, and you've done a great job of kind of paint, painting the picture here on this podcast as you do in the book, of like the current state of mass incarceration and kind of how we got there. But in the second half of the book, you kind of, you know, you don't just leave us with, hey, here's where the state of things are. You actually turn around and give us like, hey, in response of all this, here's what we need to be doing. And so can you kind of tell us, you know, and specifically you talk about this idea of restorative justice. Can you talk about kind of what that is and what that looks like on like a practical basis? Yeah, so our present system says that justice is made manifest when a punishment is distributed. And that definition of justice for people of the people of God should ring very hollow because justice is not about distributing distributing punishment. We actually see that justice is about Reconciliation and healthy reintegration in the midst of holding people accountable for offenses that have transpired. And so one of the ways that I I try to help us to reframe what justice is, is first I try to turn us to the biblical text because that's where, as believers, we get our guidance for life. Um, it's rooted in what Scripture actually tells us that justice is. And so I try to take us back there and actually try to walk us through what is actually a biblical definition of justice. And as we explore what the biblical text actually has to say about justice, I then try to lead us to thinking about justice as a more restorative um, practice. And so when we actually look at justice as a more restorative practice, I think there are a couple of truths that we have to recognize. We have to first acknowledge that biblically, um, Scripture reveals that restoration, not punishment, is at the heart of God's justice. Uh, divine justice is restorative and reconciling, not retributive and isolating. Um, the restorative nature of God's justice is woven throughout Scripture. And biblically, we see that God works amid brokenness, restoring victims, communities, and offenders. And really, it's the church's inability to respond to crime in, in a biblically rooted way that testifies to the restorative nature of God 
that has emboldened a kind of system of retribution that we inherit today. And so divine justice really entails people being reconciled to God, to each other, the community, and themselves. Rather than rehabilitating our system, quarantines people who have caused harm, which ultimately harms them in the process through punitive measures and dehumanizing conditions like solitary confinement. So solitary confinement is a primary example where we know that 80,000 people every day are locked into solitary confinement. And in the midst of being in solitary confinement, that means that people are locked into a small dark cell for 23 of the 24 hours of the day, given access to human sun, human contact and sunlight for one hour a day. That's not incarceration, that's torture. And the Geneva Convention um, definition of torture actually corroborates that. And so it's really the church's um, responsibility to actually embrace a more biblically rooted definition of justice that really says that, yes, while scripture contains punishment for wrongdoing, these punishments are always enfolded within a larger narrative of relationship, redemption, and restoration. So instead of supporting a system that merely punishes, the church must pursue a justice system that reveals community, affirms human dignity, and seeks the, God, the shalom that God desires for all of us. Um, the church really has the power to help transform our criminal justice systems. But if reconciled communities are ever to become the true aim of our justice system, the church must lead the way in advocating for a system that gives opportunities for authentic rehabilitation, lasting transformation, and healthy reintegration. And so when we talk about restorative justice, restorative justice is such a paradigm shift because it assumes that part of justice is restoration. So I talk about our our current system, you know, justice is you know, seen as being accomplished when the punishment is distributed. But restorative justice says that first, crime is never just about an individual because our present system says that a crime is not committed against the individual, but is basically committed against the state. Restorative justice shifts that in two ways. One, it says that crimes aren't committed against the state, they're committed committed against people. But when a crime is committed against a person, it doesn't only have an individual um, consequence, it has a communal impact. And so if crime has a communal impact, then if once we get to the point of talking about what accountability, punishment, and uh, restoration and reconciliation for that crime looks like, the community has to be involved. And so restorative justice says that the community, through relationships, have to walk alongside of the offender in a relationship of accountability to help the offender to realize the depth of their their crime and the, the impact of their crime. And in the midst of that, when the person who has been um, violated feels comfortable, they get the opportunity to confront the person who actually committed the crime and explain to them in detail the impact that their crime has had on them and the broader community. And in that, it has literally been proven that reconciliation becomes much more possible because the person actually gets to have a dialogue and have to confront the responsibility, um, confront the, the magnitude of their crime and actually take responsibility for what they've done. And in that, through restorative, uh, supportive relationships, you actually move into a reality where uh, reconciliation and restoration are actually possible. So yeah, I actually highlight in the book how restorative justice isn't just some neat idea, but it's something that's tried and true. It's something that's been implemented in a number of countries countries throughout the world successfully, and then even in our own uh, nation, restorative justice has been used um, in a number of different uh, situations in schools and communities in a way that has really been proven to uh, be an interruption to a lot of the pipelines that I talked to talked about a few minutes ago. Sure. Dominique, what, what, uh, what role should the church play in, in helping to alleviate this situation? Yeah, the church can play a lot of roles. Um, I think one of the first ones is that I say that the church, every church should be present in at least one of four ways. Um, the first of which is prevention. The second of which is ministry to the incarcerated. 
the third of which is ministry to uh, families who have incarcerated loved ones, and the fourth is through the reentry process. And so I think if we take Scripture seriously, Matthew 25 says that all Christians have a responsibility to be present behind bars. Um, Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these, you not only did it to them, you literally did it to Jesus. And so one of the things that I'm helping people to, to really grapple with is what does it mean that we've neglected Jesus behind bars for so long, that we have not taken seriously this call, and we've reduced things like prison ministry to social justice-oriented Christians or liberal, progressive, community-developed-oriented Christians. But the call in Matthew 25 is literally to all Christians. And I oftentimes say that we don't know because we don't go. Because we fail to be present behind bars, our faith is impoverished, and we don't understand um, the ways in which the image of God is being defaced on thousands and millions of people on a daily basis within our criminal justice system. And we, we have a responsibility and an opportunity to actually be a voice of change and morality and accountability. And so when we actually have this conversation about the role of the church, I think it's critically important to understand the ways in which our support for really punitive measures and um, rhetoric around crime, uh, law and order, get tough on crime, um, zero tolerance policies, that really is a major hindrance for so many people who are actually trying to have a second chance in life. But I think more tangibly than this, um, when I was in California as a pastor, one of the things that I learned was that 50% of the incarcerated population um, actually came out of the foster care system. And so if we know that, then, you know, learning those kind of realities give the church very tangible ways to actually intervene into the system and actually we can reallocate our funding and some of our missions in a way that actually helps people to see that there are different alternatives and there are ways in which our system in its brokenness continues to re-perpetuate this reality where there's this kind of generational cycle of incarceration. So I talked about earlier about the fact that one in 14 kids throughout our nation has at least one incarcerated parent. Statistics also tell us that 70% of those kids themselves will end up in the system in their lifetime. So if the church knows realities like that and the realities of how uh, prevalent it is for a kid to go from a foster care system into incarceration, the church can actually enter into relationship and wrap their arms around kids like this and actually embrace them in loving ways that actually give them alternatives that actually decrease the, the incarceration and the generational cycle of um, incarceration. And then the last thing I'll break down, I talk about those four ways the church can be involved, but I'll break down the first one in a more tangible way. So. Churches can be involved in, in adopting schools. I actually believe that every church should adopt a school. And what adopting a school looks like is finding the school closest to you that is um, under-resourced and under-invested in. A school where we know that um, the teachers are actually literally pulling money out of their own pocket that provides school supplies for kids. Um, and we know that in these schools, there are um, a disproportionate number of students who are going to be on free and reduced lunches. If the church were actually willing to actually invest in schools like that and leverage some of its resources to actually fill in some of the gaps and some of the ways in which the school has been under-resourced and actually leverage their social capita and some of their um, resources to actually provide a more equitable starting ground for those students, it would do wonders. But more so than that, um, when we look at the disproportionate numbers who are on, uh, uh, students on free and reduced lunches in those communities, we'll see that oftentimes we fail to ask the question, if this student is so dependent on a free and reduced lunch in this context, 
and this is probably the only nutritious meal that this student might get all day. What happens to those students during the during the summertime and during the holiday season when school is not in session? How do those kids eat? Um, and most churches don't realize that during the summer, churches can actually volunteer to serve as summer feeding programs. You literally can become this haven of good news where people can actually have access to food and the nutrition they need to live. And in the midst of providing that space, you have the opportunity to get into relationships with people and form relationships where you can actually not only feed them, but actually do life with them in a way that opens them up to the true source of um nutrition and uh, in living water you can actually um actually start to help them to understand um that the church is not only there to provide a physical good news through material means but actually the truest good news and a news that um will never run dry through a new relationship with Jesus Christ but we can't be so invested in um evangelizing uh the oral articulation of good news that we help that we cease to forget the physical needs that people have on an everyday basis and we have to be willing to do the both and holistic ministry that takes seriously the physical needs and situations and circumstances that people have to confront on a daily basis but also their their spiritual and moral needs um, in a way that god can help them to live a new more fuller and robust life than they could ever imagine you know, Dominique, just as we're getting ready to wrap up, you know, I'm just thinking of, you know, the average person in our audience and, you know, they hear, they hear all of this, you know, they hear about, you know, kind of the role of, you know, the war on drugs and mass incarceration. And maybe they're just wondering, man, what, what can I, what can I tangibly do? Like, what, what would you say to the average person who's like, I want, I want to help, but I'm not sure where to start, to start. What would you tell them? Yeah, I'd tell them a couple things. One, I would say go visit a prison. Go visit a prison, a jail, a, a juvenile detention center. I think being there will – we have to learn to get proximate. As we learn to get proximate to these realities, um, then these numbers move from just being numbers to relationships. They move to being faces. and the conviction deepens. And so the urgency of the moment we find ourselves in uh, takes on a new light. The second thing I would say is find your area of passion in regards to this conversation. So if you're passionate about education, then get involved in the school to prison pipeline. If you're passionate about helping society's most vulnerable and you have some kind of medical expertise, um, get involved in volunteering uh, to serve in some capacity where you're actually speaking to the reality of mental health. Maybe you're a cl clinician who can volunteer your time um, in a prison uh, providing services. If you're a dentist, uh, uh, so many people behind bars actually need dentists and different people who are willing to volunteer their time. Um, a very tangible thing is you can volunteer to be a mentor or a tutor at your local elementary school, middle school, or high school. You can be a life coach. You can join um, Boys and Girls Clubs and actually invest your time in that way. If you have a connection to a foster care home, you can actually volunteer your time there. But one of the things we know about foster care kids and incarceration is that most kids who are incarcerated, who come out of the system, get incarcerated right around the holiday season because they come back from they come back to school and they hear all of these stories about their friends and their peers who had these great experiences and they come back with these material gifts and they're just so jovial about the holidays and everything that comes along with it. But they come back from, you know, these environments where they're missing their family, they didn't have loved ones in their lives and there's this resentment and oftentimes they don't have the same kind of, you know, jovial experience and because of that they end up acting out. Um, the church 
and individual people, we have the opportunity to expand our definition of family during these holiday seasons and actually invite some of these people into our homes in a way that actually bears witness to something different than what they've known their entire lives, uh, to have that kind of expanded definition of family, love and support during the holiday season would go miles, uh, do wonders for, you know, these kids. And so that's a very tangible way that people can be involved in um, interrupting the present system. Well, Dominique, thanks so much for joining us on the Learner's Corner podcast today. If people want to continue to learn from you and pick up your book, where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, people can pick up my book at uh, Amazon or any major place where books are sold. Um, right now, it's the number one new release on Amazon, and it's been doing really well there. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at ddgilliard, that's D-D-G-I-L-L-I-A-R-D, and you can follow me on Facebook at uh, Dominique D. Gilliard. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. So, Todd, we just came out of a pretty heavy conversation. Very heavy. But what are a couple of things that you took away from our conversation? I think one of the major things is, you know, we, we said at the front end, um, you know, this, this conversation is going to be uncomfortable for some. Um, and on one hand, you know, we, you and I have talked about this. We want to say, I don't care. But I do care. Like, I want people to be able to hear this, even if they don't agree with it. And the, and the reason why is is this. Um, m- m- what I Really, what you're saying is, I don't care. Like, I don't care. If it makes you uncomfortable yeah. because it's good for you. Like, I don't eat vegetables. I don't like to eat vegetables. But it's something that I should do more of. Um, it be, why? Because it's healthy for me. And it's going to make me feel better. And it's going to make me live longer. And so, I think these conversations are, are important. But here's the biggest, here's the biggest reason why. Um, racism, uh, classism, is actually antithetical to the gospel. It actually is. Um, and so when we have conversations like this. racism and classism says, I'm better than you. Yeah, it says, I'm better than you. And what we find in, the, in, in Scripture, in the Bible, and, and, and you guys can be Christians or not Christians, but, you know, for Caleb and I, that's our worldview is, comes from, from Christianity. And what we see in Scripture is, is Jesus, who's kind of the, the head guy of, of Christianity. Level the playing field. He's, he's saying, hey, um, no, uh, all of you, by the way, Scripture tells us all of us have sinned, right? We've all fall, fallen short of the glory of God. So you say you're better than me, but we're both sinners. So um, no, not really. And, and so it's, it, like I said, it's antithetical to the gospel. And so what this, what this is helping us do is continue to have a conversation. And we're, we love talking about this just because we're, we're passionate about it. Where, you know, here's another thing, and it's not even with the justice system, and this is my, this is my takeaway, is, is so we, we like to talk about the justice system and how that's unfair. Well, how many people talk about what happens when people finally go to prison, right? And so he's talking about things where basically slave labor is still happening in prisons and how the history of where that came from after slavery during Reconstruction and how they rewrote laws and things. And so for me, it was eye-opening, um, you know, because we're too young white kids from Tuscross County, Ohio, um, who, you know, we don't know things. And so whenever I hear this, I'm like, wow, uh, this is something that I wasn't prepared for. And, and so I love being able to, to, to hear him talk about that because one of the major things I learned from this episode is, um, whenever we sweep things under the rug and whenever we play the game of, uh, I don't see it. So it's not there. People are still being hurt. Yep. Yep. I agree. Yeah. A really, really eye-opening book. Really eye-opening conversation. Check that stuff out. Yep. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast today. Let us know what you're currently learning from and learning. And the best way you can do that is hit us up on social media: Twitter at the Learners. Cor- sorry, Twitter at Learners Podcast. Instagram at the Learners Corner. Subscribe to the podcast. It's yep. the best way for you to be able to catch any of our episodes. We air episodes every Tuesday. Exactly. Leave us a rating and write a review of the podcast. Do it. So thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is Todd Hicksonball. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.